Central. This is Tech Radio. All things computers, gadgets and web happening right now in Ireland. Hear us anytime on iTunes or download from techcentral.ie. Central. How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio. For 10 years, the number one Irish tech podcast bringing you the latest in tech from around Ireland and across the world. As a member as well as a show on air with RTE and online via the website or indeed any of the major podcasting apps, Spotify, iTunes or TuneIn. Uh, we keep you up to date on all things tech every day with hourly updates and daily newsletters which you can grab for free at techcentral.ie. This week, in the last of our reports from the recent BT Young Scientist exhibition, we have an interview with Dr. Steve Collins. And rather than get into his credentials right now with me, let me let Niall explain in his introduction who he is and why we've been after him for so long. Yeah, someone we've been trying to get uh, on the show for quite a while now is Stephen Collins, who... Uh co-founder of Havoc, adjunct associate professor of computer graphics at TCD and also a partner with Frontline Ventures. So I guess we'll go through your, your career to date and also talk about a few uh, a few aspects of your work that are particularly interesting at the moment. So I guess let's start at the beginning, which is effectively in, at a Commodore 64. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I believe you had a Commodore 64 as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, Commodore 64 was my second love. My first love was a ZX80 from Sinclair which was in 1980, actually. So I would have been 10 at the time, and my parents bought me a ZX80, and that, I, I think, uh, I, the bug happened right there. Um, it was a really clanky old old computer, but it, it could do some simple games, uh, some simple programs, and I started coding and just getting a feel for it and just uh, got completely entranced by what that was. Commodore 64 came about two years later, and then I just started to get really into games and the technology behind games and started reading books about how to write code and to, to, to do machine code and started writing my own game around about uh, 1984, uh, which then led to my submission to the Young Scientist exhibition here. So uh, you're, you're sort of an alumnus, which, which is uh, quite interesting, So, which leads us on to fast forward a few years, I suppose, and we're looking at Havoc. So mm. Sort of a, a middleware company, not something that uh, people would necessarily um, know, but certainly something that people are aware of their work in uh, behind the scenes. So a little bit about um, Havoc, and you know, it's kind of a, an interesting success story. Sure. So um, I, I had a passion for games, and I uh, sort of hooked up with a good friend of mine, Hugh Reynolds, in Trinity College. And uh, he had a passion for physics and simulation. And it, we put these two things together and started some research in this area in Trinity College. And eventually, we, we always wanted to create a company, so we did. We spun that out of Trinity College in 1998 and created the first version of Havoc, which was physics for games. And it was middleware. And middleware is really software or libraries that game developers use to create the games. So it's not the game itself. But because of that, it meant we were involved in some way in the creation of hundreds of games over the last sort of 20 years. Um, and I think over... Uh, I think the top 500 games, we were in the top eight of the top 10 uh, console games of all time. Uh, Havoc was behind behind that in some respects. And I'm estimating myself, just having a look at the industry, I think we've been played by about 500 million people. You know, a game with Havoc inside of it has been experienced by half a billion around the world. So that's sort of pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just games, um, also spilling into the special effects field as well. 
Yeah, that's right. Simulation in general, you know, can be used in a number of different areas. And post-production for movies is a particular area. Uh, a couple of companies started to use Havoc as part of their pipeline. And then Havoc got into lots of top movies, like some of the Harry Potter franchise. The, uh, uh, let me see, Kingdom of Heaven was the one that I really enjoyed because it had a great sequence uh, using Havoc uh, for some trebuchets and things like that in a, in a, in a battle sequence. Uh, and it was used in a ton, ton of titles that, that a lot of people will know. Uh, I'm again fast forwarding again to your role uh, in Trinity at the moment and again that overlap between entertainment media Um, and one thing that strikes me as being uh, a step forward is that integration between games and um, well games then and games now where it went from the fulfilling of a task to engaging in a story Mm. do you think that um, graphics have been integral to that movement? Yes, graphics is probably the first thing. You know, the graphics have to be good enough to draw you into the story, to make you believe in what you're seeing on the screen. That doesn't mean they have to be realistic necessarily. They have to be engaging in some respects. And there have been some great examples of games that are truly cartoon in nature or nearly surrealist in nature, but still draw you in. But that's only the first part of it. You know, it, you have to have the, the full picture. You need to have a physical simulation for certain types of games so that the world reacts to you and you have agency in the world. You need to have great sound so that things sound and the audio scape around you is, is compelling. And then the game itself has to react back to you. The, the narrative is played through the behavior of other non-player characters or events that happen inside the game. And that all has to come together in a sequence that's compelling. And I think there's some great examples when that really comes together and works well. And for me, some of the best examples would be The Last of Us from Naughty Dog on the PlayStation. That was a phenomenal title that included great physics. I won't say who that was from. Uh, some really fantastic graphics. But more than that, it was a, a narrative that blended between telling you a story and then allowing you to participate in the story, which was just super compelling. I think there's an interesting overlap with comics there as well, where I find the most powerful games are the ones that have a unified aesthetic. For for example, you know, a, a Gears of War, where you look at something and you go, that's clearly a Gears of War game. Do you think some games fall down in that they, they lose that idea or they try to create a sense of it was like this, only more elaborate now? Interesting. I, I think there have been some good examples of games that have, not necessarily a comic book aesthetic, but which have their own look and feel, and that that persists throughout every version of the game. Maybe an example might be Borderlands, which some people may or may not be aware of, but it sort of it transitions between nearly a comic book look, but also is very much a 3D look, and they've continued with that through the, very, the various versions of that game. But then you look at other games, and one that comes to mind immediately is the Zelda franchise. That's gone through so many different iterations, and they've experimented with so many different ways of telling that story, from the early stages of the 2D artwork to 3D, then they explored a little bit the more abstract and impressionist uh, going down the cartoony route, and then they came back with the most recent uh, version on the Switch to something that's maybe more rooted in realism, but still has an absolutely magical background flair. It feels like nearly a Studio Ghibli movie that's playing that you're interacting with. Um, so, you know, I think in some cases games will retain a certain uh, look and feel. In other cases, games are very happy to explore lots of different ways of expressing themselves. It is quite a gamble because when, when you think when somebody sits down to play a game, they're, they're making a contract with the, with the developers that there are certain things they, they expect to have fulfilled, whether it's aesthetic or whether it's story. Do you think games have a particular talent for, um, for changing that contract, especially as the technology changes quickly? 
That's a very interesting point because there are lots of game tropes, uh, things that we see happening over and over in games. In some respects, if you're a gamer, it's easier to get into a game when these tropes are there. You, you see a crate, you expect to search in the crate, even though it might make, make no sense at all. And you find a very large bazooka in a crate, which clearly can't fit in something that size. But that's the trope. So there are game mechanics that are there to help people very quickly get into an environment. But there are also barriers to people who aren't gamers and who are trying to come to games for the first time. These tropes become constraints. So I think the really best games draw you into the world and teach you about it and allow you to either work at your own pace, if you aren't familiar with this area, or allow you to very quickly get into the game and move past, say, the tutorial phases and and get straight into the, the gameplay. And I suppose balancing that idea, you want a game that's easy and, and fun to play, a, a game that can be compelling even for hardcore gamers, but it can also be open to people who are less sophisticated and, and have less of a, an experience of games. That's a very, very tough line uh, to draw. And I think games like uh, Last of Us, I, I say that again because for me it's one of the best examples, do an, a, an amazing job of, of that, of bringing people into the game and teaching them about the, about the things they need to do. Just in terms of using The Last of Us or any sort of paid subscription game uh, as an example, how hard is it to get somebody from that free trial, from that subscription period, from that initial hour or two of gameplay, to get them to invest more into, in, into the property? Because you hear it an awful lot on about subscription games that, yeah, I had my free few weeks and I just, I just let it lapse. You know what? Where do you think that tipping point is where people go, do you know what, I'm, I'm willing to part money for this? I think that depends very heavily on the game itself and it's a critical part particularly of any free to play sort of game uh, mechanic if if a game developer has chosen to go that route whether it's uh, episodic or whether it's a game that just gives you access to a greater uh, portion of it once you complete a certain amount. Um, and I think game developers, particularly as they think about games as a service, uh, and the service is delivering an entertainment experience to the player, an engaging experience that they want to come back to. And hopefully at some point we'll want to transact with the company because that's how the company gets to make the next game. They need to make money. Um, that first experience, that, that trial, that tutorial, that first level, whatever it is, is absolutely critical in making a connection with a game, uh, game player. And a lot of energy and effort goes in, a lot of technology goes into trying to figure out how to improve that. So, for example, in Swerve, uh, the third company I was involved with was very much about that. It was trying to understand what players were doing inside mobile games, in in our case, and just really get into the, the, the psychology of what they were trying to achieve, where they were finding it boring or where they were finding it compelling, and provide data back to the game developer so they could use that to fuel the next iterations of the game. And that's probably the most important point. Games particularly if they're online and particularly if they're mobile, you get an opportunity to change them all the time. You can react to players as they're playing it. And that's, that's really the power of today's modern game environment. Uh, and when we're talking about gaming these days, you can't not talk about Fortnite. Uh, and gaming as a, a culture is, it has traditionally been quite niche. And then something like Fortnite comes along and it seems to blast everything uh, away in its wake. Do you think Fortnite represents... Um, a massive cultural shift in how people perceive gaming? 
I suppose whenever you get very high-profile events like Fortnite, it's, you know, it, it creates a lot of buzz and people become then increasingly aware of what's going on. But Fortnite is just another example, another uh, sort of phenomenon. That's, and games, the game industry, has had very many of these. Uh, you could argue maybe Candy Crush was one of the early examples, or Farmville, you know, going back a little bit further, and the Zynga story on, on Facebook. Uh, Candy Crush is still a huge game. It's, it's not top of people's minds because it's sort of settled down and the buzz is, is finished. Then you had Minecraft, for example. That was enormous at, at its time and, and showed what was possible to create sort of nearly an educational game experience or certainly a creative one. And Fortnite, I think, is another story in the game, uh, another chapter in the game story. And it's, it's a sort of weird one. No one really knows why. Uh, arguably, it's building on some of the early work from PUBG uh, and, you know, the player unknown battlegrounds was just an amazing idea of creating this space where multiple players can interact and battle and, and all that sort of stuff. And Fortnite was definitely an evolution of that. And, you know, it's there today. It's, it's the top franchise right now. What's going to be there next year? I, I don't know, but there'll be something else which will push the boundaries even further. And I think the things that are changing about the game industry is very much more moving towards a multiplayer experience. It's nearly becoming a social event rather than a single-player narrative. So it's less... In some ways, movies are weird because they're a single player in the sense that you watch a movie, but people go to the cinema to watch it with other people so it becomes a social experience. That's really what Fortnite is about. It's creating a social experience out of something that theoretically is a single-player thing. I think the comparison with PUBG is so interesting because you, you had a collaborative experience for gamers versus collaborative experience for people that basically aren't. Uh, yeah, exactly. Now, with, with Fortnite, I think one of the really interesting parts of it is the, the environment itself is subject to change. So you're not just given a, a playground and, and said, you know, go beat your friends, you know, uh, win, win a particular uh, game type. There have been lots of games out there that are multiplayer that have started, say, back in the d- days of Doom and, and things like that. But with Fortnite, you have an ability to mold the world around you, and that's what's different. Now, arguably, you could say that uh, Minecraft was the first exa- a good example of that at scale, where you could you know, do multiplayer games and you could build things as you were playing, and that became a part of lots of the multiplayer Minecraft experiences. Uh, PUBG went a little bit further than that, and then Fortnite really capitalized on that. So you know, people are building like crazy these fortresses and defenses, and that's part of the game, and that's, that's really, really interesting. Uh, so looking forward then, uh, as somebody that's uh, involved in the academic end of things, what sort of ideas are you seeing students come in to, to, uh, to class with? Are they looking for the next Last of Us or are they looking at the next Fortnite? Are they looking at new ways to do mobile games? Well, now, I'm not directly involved, unfortunately, with students these days. My, my role is very much more of an advisory role. But, uh, you know, I do, get, I do get to talk to lots of early stage startups, people who are getting involved in creating the next generation of technology for games. And that's probably what I get more visibility of. Um, and there's a whole lot happening, particularly in the area of uh, augmented reality and virtual reality. That, that, I think, is probably, certainly over the last year, where I've seen most activity, most innovation, people trying to think about what are the games of five years from now going to look like? And you know, the question is still a completely blank slate. No one knows at this stage what's going to happen and what changes in technology and form factor are going to be made available to us to, to tell stories and to have people interact I love augmented reality as a concept. We're so far away from it technologically right now. We've just scratched the surface. But anybody who has uh, had a chance to experience something like a hollow lens or a magic leap can, can see what might be possible. 
it's way early at this stage, but you can see what will happen if you can sort of really realistically blend the augmented world, the you know, the computer-generated world, and the real world. That opens up some extraordinary possibilities that I can't even begin to think about. And Pokemon Go has been the lab in which people have experienced this, but you know, for better ill in a lot of cases. Interesting. Like Pokemon Go, I suppose, showed both what is possible uh, in terms of audience engagement and, and getting a sort of a, a location-based game uh, off the ground. The, the interaction between the 3D and the, uh, and the real world is limited. So it really very much feels like an overlay. And I suppose it's more about the interactions between the people who are, are playing the game. So that from a technology perspective, it was sort of interested. From a gameplay exper- uh, perspective, it was very, very interesting. But what Niantic are going on to do now, they've raised a lot of money. Uh, this is the studio behind Pokemon Go. And they're now look- they're creating essentially a mapping technology. They're trying to create a 3D version of the real world so that they can embed 3D games into the real world in a much more faithful way. And that's, that's big vision, but quite exciting to see. So if you visit the Spire, you, you might get a game called Dublin Spire. You might well do. You might well do. And that was Niall Kitson talking to Dr. Steve Collins at the BT Young Scientists Exhibition. That's it for our show this week. Remember, you can get the lowdown on all things tech in Ireland with hourly updates, daily newsletters and more at our website, techcentral.ie. Or, of course, listen to us each week online or Fridays at 5pm on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall, thank you so much for listening and have a great weekend. Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie. Tech Radio is produced by DigitalAudioProductions.com. Tech Central.